Hello, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. These interviews were recorded from the 13th season of our live show at the Bryan Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. Every show features an interview on an important issue and then an improv comedy performance based on that interview. You're listening to just the interview from one of those shows. We'd also like to thank our media sponsor, MinPost, which provides reader-supported news and analysis. You can check them out at www.minpost.com. This episode of the show is all about manufactured housing. We had two guests, and our first was Miguel Odorola, a reporter for the Star Tribune. His coverage area is the inner ring suburbs of the Twin Cities. He's previously written for the Arizona Republic, the Seattle Times, and the Boston Globe. He was born in Chile and came to the U.S. at the age of eight. He studied journalism at Arizona State University and served as editor-in-chief of the Downtown Devil, a student-run news site. Our other guest is Kevin Walker who is the acting executive director of the North Country Cooperative Foundation, an organization dedicated to transforming lives and communities through cooperative enterprise. He has been with NCF for 12 years. He received his BA in political science from Swarthmore College and his MRP in city and regional planning from Cornell University. I hope you enjoy the show. So I guess uh, we should start off with kind of a basic question, and this is to either of you. Uh, don't fight over it. But uh, what exactly is manufactured housing? When we see that term and people use it, what what are we talking about, kind of all-encompassingly? Sure. <laughs> Kevin, you, Kevin's the pro here. <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. Uh, manufactured housing is housing that has been built in a factory After 1976, uh, that was the year that, for the first time, the United States regulated the construction of prefabricated housing. So that's what you're talking about when you say manufactured housing. So this does not count uh, kind of prior fabricated housing, not entirely like like Levitt homes or those uh, steel buildings built by the Army. Those would not be considered manufactured housing? Correct. Manufactured housing is a technical term that means it was built. Technically, it means it's at least 400... 20 square feet uh, in uh, size, and that it's constructed at least after 1976. There's been subsequent updates to the HUD code, uh, which is the only national building code of any type of construction in the United States. And so that's what it means when you say manufactured house. If it was built before 1976, you can call it a mobile home, or people have talked about travel trailers or trailer homes. Uh, You can use those terms almost indiscriminately, but after 1976, the correct term is manufactured house. That will get you corrected and a finger wag from you. Possibly. Okay. Um, So what is the current state of manufactured housing? I guess in the pre-76, post-76 sense. We're We're talking everything here. Sure. Well, um, I can speak for Hennepin County because that's what a lot of the stories that a colleague and I, uh, Hannah Covington, who's here too, uh, wrote about this year, uh, this summer. Um, It hasn't been favorable, let's just say. Um, uh, Half of the mobile homes, uh, excuse me, the manufactured housing communities in Hennepin County have closed since 1991. Uh, They haven't opened any new ones. And uh, just this year, we saw the closure of two big manufactured housing communities. That would be Two that you might be familiar with, with one is Southgate in um, Bloomington, and then Lowry Grove, which was uh, almost 100 uh, units of manufactured housing in St. Anthony. And you may be following that because it's become a very big story and continues to be a big story. Um, so they, what, what happens when these people, when they're displaced, when, when a community shuts down, people still have their homes? Where do these homes go? Yep, a lot of people still have their homes. Some of them are not in the best shape. Um, They have a couple of different options, but they're not necessarily very easy to attain. Um, The first is you can definitely try to move your home to a different location. Um, You know, you can try to move to another home, uh, a housing community like in New Brighton, for example. A lot of families that used to live in Lowry Grove now made lakeside homes in New Brighton, their new community. Um, Sometimes you just have to let it go and try to get the money that you can from that house. Um, Other times you just have to try to find a different housing situation, nothing that can be as affordable mm-hmm. as what you used to have in a manufactured housing community, uh, but you can try. Um, so when we talk about, you, you kind of mentioned briefly, like what, what is the profile of, what, who are the people that are living in these homes? I think there's kind of negative stereotypes in media. Not, it's not always a term of endearment to say someone lives in a mobile community. And so like what's the reality there? Like who, who, what are these people like? 
Yeah, and I think it's something that kind of Kevin touched on just by the term, right? A lot of people still think that manufactured housing communities are uh, mobile homes, trailer homes, trailer parks. Um, and that's not the case. A lot of these homes, just like you said, they're built on site. They have are very energy efficient. They're quite beautiful. Like if you get to step in, inside some of these, they definitely look better than the apartment that I have, <laughs> which is like a studio in, in downtown Minneapolis. Um, no, they're really great homes, and the people that live in them um, are very across the spectrum in terms of their profession, in terms of how much money they do make, in terms of the the amount of people that they have in their families. Um, it. I think you are going to get a lot of people that are lower income and maybe a lot more people that are minority. Um, but um, I think they are incredibly hardworking. The people that I met really know their stuff. They're very organized. Um, and they contribute a lot to Hennepin County, to the cities that they live in. So what's happening here? How are, the, how are we losing these communities? What is kind of changing? I, I know a little bit about how... Uh, it's kind of a complicated ownership model where people own their home, but they may lease the land. And so there's like another property owner, and then taxes are complicated because you might pay into an association that like does – you're giving me a look. Am I way off base here? Uh, <laughs> m- most of what you say is right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Most? Okay. Yes, absolutely. Feel free to correct me. Sure. So um, I guess the, the statewide picture uh, runs like this. There's almost 1,000 manufactured housing communities in Minnesota – which, again, for a lot of people, that's, that's a surprising number. And even more relevant and surprising is that almost 50,000 families live in manufactured homes around the state. Uh, locally here in the Twin Cities metro area, there's about 83 uh, manufactured housing communities or parks. Uh, and they have about 14,000-plus uh, manufactured home sites. So that kind of gives you a picture of the scale. Uh, this is a really important affordable housing resource. And going to Miguel's point... Uh, you know, because of the price point in the manufactured homes themselves, the combination of lot rent, which I'll get to in a second, which goes exactly to what you're speaking to, and any house payment that they have on the homes that they own in combination is very competitive with a two-bedroom apartment, especially in a tight rental housing market like what we're seeing right now. Uh, so with respect to why are these communities at risk, uh, these communities are developed as private uh, Enterprises, basically. Uh, About 40 or 50 years ago, in most cases, these parks were developed. Someone took a 12 or 15-acre parcel of land, divided it up into individual lots, uh, installed privately owned sewer, water, and street infrastructure, uh, which is the infrastructure that makes it meaningful that the homes are there on those sites. And if there's not investment, as is always the case with anything that humankind builds, uh, that infrastructure will gradually uh, deteriorate over time. And 40 or 50 years later, if there isn't significant investments that have been put in on a periodic basis to maintain that infrastructure, it puts all of the homeowners at risk. And I think it's important to note that they are homeowners. Uh, The homeownership rate in manufactured housing communities exceeds the ownership rate of site-built construction. So if you think about all of the rental housing and ownership housing that exists in Minnesota, you overall, and as many of you in the audience here know, Minnesota has one of the highest homeownership rates in the country, and I'm here to say the homeownership rate in these communities is even greater than that. The other uh, feature on the ownership landscape, when we think about who has access to assets uh, for the long term, uh, it's a really important question. And again, to Miguel's point, Uh, There is a high proportion of households of color that live in manufactured housing, disproportionate to their um, representation in the overall population. And what's more, if you look at the Twin Cities metro area, the home ownership rate among households of color exceeds that of their white counterparts, which just is to say that this is the only form of housing in Minnesota where there is no home ownership gap. Minnesota routinely scores at the top, unfortunately, this is one place we don't need to score at the top, uh, with, with the highest rate of home ownership gap in the country. There's like something like a 25 to 28% gap between the home ownership rate of whites and households of color. And it simply isn't the case with manufactured housing. And then if you put these different pieces together and you think about these communities being at risk, either from redevelopment pressures or gradual deterioration, and frankly, it's almost predictable off of an actuarial table that the infrastructure will break down. It reaches a point where you have enough water main breaks, uh, and this was part of the dynamic at Lowry Grove, where you have about a $2 million infrastructure bill that somebody needs to pay to sustain and maintain that community as manufactured housing. 
And uh, because it's privately owned, the usual alphabet soup of public sources that you would go to, community development block grants, USDA money, et cetera, is often unavailable because the infrastructure is privately owned. And so all of the weight and the costs of that rests uh, principally with the park owner. And so if the park owner simply chooses to raise their return on investment by not putting money back into the park, the infrastructure will get to the point where the economically rational decision is to close the park, uh, basically displace, and with Lowry Grove or other examples, 50, 80, 100 households all in one stroke, and they're off looking for different jobs, school districts for their kids, and their lives are largely uh, pretty heavily impacted by this. The social fabric of these communities also gets destroyed in the process, and, and then the park owner now winds up with an asset that he or she or the entity that they own can resell. And again, if there's redevelopment pressure, as in Lowry Grove, maybe you can resell the whole park for $6 million and make money in the bargain. So let's go a little more specifically and, I guess, use that as a case study, unless you were very kind of a developer may, and you were just referring to the developer at Lowry Grove. But why, why don't we look at Lowry Grove specifically and see, like, oh, here in this situation it happened, and then this occurred, and then, and then, and then. Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of and thens, and there continue to be and thens with, with, with Lowry Grove and St. Anthony. Um, and maybe Can you, you give, like, a brief overview? I know you have lots of fans in the audience. No, I don't think I do. <laughs> uh, unless you I read, heard a woo. Unless you read the Star Tribune, which is great. Please do. <laughs> Shouts out to MinPost. And also, I want to say NPR also did incredible coverage of the, the situation in Lowry Grove. But um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Lowry Grove was sold to a new owner in June of 2016. So this was almost more than a year ago. Um, so I think the people that used to live in St. Anthony at the time already kind of had an idea of what was going to happen. Developments soon came out that this was going to be uh, a new apartment situation. There were going to be up to maybe 700 units. And uh, people basically had no choice but to go ahead and try to either move their homes, take all that time to go somewhere else. Now, the people in Lowry Grove at the time organized to try to go ahead and prevent this. Uh, I think it was under the uh, idea that the new owner was violating the Fair Housing Act when they uh, went ahead and, and made the purchase and decided to go ahead and come up with a new development proposal. Um, that went to the last minute. There was a nonprofit um, uh, housing. Uh, was that you? No. Oh. No, no, no. It was another house. It's, it's called Aeon, and they're a, a, a house, uh, excuse me, a nonprofit uh, developer. Uh, that went up all the way to the last minute, and uh, ultimately it just wasn't enough. The, the timing was too tight, and they had to move, and they had to move very quickly. Um, and so what's happened recently? Well, recently, so you would say that in June 30th of this year, everybody had to leave. There were still quite a few families that just had to wait until that midnight point to go ahead and, and move out to the new locations. And ever since then, they were kind of working on a settlement to that lawsuit, uh, how much money they could go ahead and raise. Um, and uh, a lot of people moved to different uh, uh, manufactured housing communities, just different uh, apartments. Some people may, might still be homeless, uh, according to the last story that we did. Um, and this is, might be a, a handful of people, right, um, that might still be homeless, uh, couch hopping, living with relatives, things like that, maybe even in homeless shelters. Um, and, and just lately, we realized, we learned that the city of St. Anthony was rejected the development plan for that new uh, apartment building they were going to build in that land. Uh, Was that a case of St. Anthony saying, no, Mr. Potter, we're not going to let you exploit these people's housing? Um, I think no, it just... No one got that reference? No, no, good. You know, I, I did not. So, I'm very sorry. <laughs> no, I think it was more uh, of them kind of uh, caving into pressure of people that did not want this much density in this area. I mean, 700 units could be a lot for some people. Um, but it, it honestly did give that appearance, right, that they did not care too much about uh, having more affordable housing in the area, that, uh, you know, people thought that they were just, and people from the new development company thought that they were going to go ahead and, the, the reason that they did this was to go ahead and just remove the, the, the uh, manufactured housing community. Um, and ultimately, I mean, it, it gave a lot of issues to that developer who then suddenly, out of nowhere, uh, put up a banner saying, we're, opening, we're reopening as an RV park immediately. Um, and I think that came to a shock, obviously, to a lot of people that uh, were involved in the situation, to the city, uh, to the people that used to live in Lowry Grove. Um, and we were just talking about this has kind of been like a pointing fingers. So who's, is, who? is that actually going to happen, or is it Mr. Potter up to his old tricks? Well, I do think that they're going to reopen up. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll tell you about it later. <laughs> Please do. 
I do think they're going to reopen up as an RV park. In fact, I think they already have. Um, but Kevin doesn't believe that they're going to do their, fulfill their second promise, which I think was reopen again as a manufactured housing community. And he can maybe speak a bit more as to why that is. I, I just, I mean, anybody, anybody's guess, but I guess as, as I look at the situation, the infrastructure in that community isn't uh, really functional. Uh, it really can't support or sustain a new community without dramatic rehab efforts. And my guess is it's at least, you know, roughly a $2 million bill to get that infrastructure brought up to a place where you could sustain a community, uh, even on the same footprint that the park had before. And I guess my other doubt about the situation is the numbers simply don't support any level of density. I mean, the RV thing to me is a way that you can generate some quick income yeah. that, that is temporary exactly in nature. It's not a long-term disposition plan, certainly for the site. And any developer with uh, the bills that they uh, paid to get control of that land, they're going to be determined to turn that into something that's worth a lot more than a temporary RV park. And they're, they're probably not going to be trying to bring the park back anytime soon, is my sense. And again, the density won't support those numbers. Yeah. So that seems, I mean, that's a very unfortunate situation. And so why don't, why don't we transition to talking about, like, what's a better uh, outcome? What's a better ownership model rather than someone that can just wake up and decide to sell your park or not fix the infrastructure? Like, you do a lot of work more on cooperative ownership models. What, how is that different? Sure. It's uh, different in a lot of, uh, we would suggest, significant ways. Uh, so with uh, cooperative ownership, we, we work with willing park owners. So these are park owners that otherwise want to sell their park, and they could sell it to you know Tom, Dick, and Harry that they've known on the park owner's circuit. It's a pretty tight-knit group of folks that own this class of real estate. Uh, so they could sell to those folks. Or, and what we're constantly in the business of doing at NCF, is communicating to them that their other option would just be to sell their communities to the residents themselves. And that often the residents can be their best buyer. Uh, we've run into community owners that appreciate the kind of wealth that park ownership has delivered to them. And as a legacy to leave back with the residents, uh, they would love to sell it to the residents and money being green no matter who hands it to you. Uh, if, if we can go into a community, organize the residents into a cooperative, help them get the financing it takes to buy the park for its fair market value. We're not asking park owners to give anything up here in the bargain just to sell it for what it's worth. Uh, we find um, our experience has been, and, and we follow a model that was pioneered in New Hampshire about 35 years ago, and we're one of nine nonprofit organizations doing this kind of work under the banner of Rock USA around the country. So we'll go into a community like this, and once we know that a park owner is willing to sell a park at a price that we're pretty sure the residents can reach uh, with a 10 to 15 percent, sometimes a 20 percent increase in their lot rent, one time, which they themselves approve. It's the first time anybody asks them, frankly, what they want to pay for lot rent and toward what purpose. Uh, you know, what will you get for your lot rent? If you raise your lot rents 10 to 20%, in our experience, many of the residents can afford to pay what it takes and they get highly leveraged financing, uh, which is just to say they borrow 110% of what the property is worth, and we have a dedicated nonprofit lender that will lend because they recognize that there's equity in these communities uh, in, in the form of this, their kids that go to the schools, uh, the jobs that their parents have, the social fabric that's in these communities, and everything else equal. They would love to stay where they are. They know they can't replace the price point that they have, and believe it or not, I mean, for many of the residents, this is actually their housing option of first choice. They'd rather live on their own little lot with a small garden and not sharing a wall uh, with other neighbors than, you know, and some of them have lived in apartments and they simply have chosen this as a better option. They've invested in a home and maybe they've spent $6,000 on the home or eight or 10 or 20,000. Uh, but regardless of what they put into that home, that investment is at risk if they don't have any control over what infrastructure gets maintained in that park and which parts of it don't. And that's exactly what cooperative ownership is designed to deliver, is they elect their own board of directors. Members make all the big decisions. They set their lot rents. They set an annual budget. Uh, and they oversee a long-term capital improvements plan that's like 30 years in length. The lenders, trust me, really kick the tires as they evaluate these parks. They want to know that the infrastructure isn't all going to bust loose in 10 or 15 years. So we literally do a 30-year analysis of how long the different components of the park will last. Mm -hmm. And that's done by an engineering firm. And we review that with very rigorous underwriting. We do a sewer video survey. 
Those are fun to watch. Um, and all Do you of have the a highlights reel. You can. <laughs> He's not going into. I, I actually left that at home today. I'm so oh. sorry. Yes, exactly. Did you say that the the organization that helps is called Rock USA? Yes. All right. Yeah, and right. No, there's all kinds of places you can go with that, I'm sure. Uh, so, so Rock USA stands for Resin-Owned Communities USA, and it's based in Concord, New Hampshire, where this model really got its first start. And it launched as a national social enterprise in 2008. Um, so we've been doing deals like this. Uh, basically, our first one uh, closed, which is to say they closed on the financing for it, not that the park closed, uh, in 2004. And so since then, we've done 11 of these projects uh, with total development costs of about $28 million between Minnesota and Wisconsin, 780 households permanently preserved through resident ownership under this model. So, so if, I, if I may interfere, then uh, some of those uh, recent ones have been uh, Park Plaza, right, which is in Fridley, which is a beautiful park. And we compared what happened in that park, which uh, became a cooperative uh, community, to what happened in Lowry Grove. Um, and then just recently, you closed uh, on a, on a, on a uh, manufactured housing community in Rochester. Uh, and I don't know how many units that, that one was particularly. 122 was. home sites, yeah. Right. So um, just like you said, uh, a group of these residents manage the day-to-day operations, all the changes that they have to go through. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's good that you mentioned that not every uh, community can become this. I mean, a uh, community like Lowry Grove, just like you said, would have taken millions of dollars to go ahead and improve. Um, uh, a lot of these communities seem to already be in good enough of shape that you can go ahead and, 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 and go and uh, present that to the, uh, the owner to go ahead and say, hey, yeah, the residents can go ahead and take over this. Right, and I appreciate you raising that point. I think it is fair to say that not every community has an easy path to resident ownership. Uh, I, I guess I would also, though, emphasize we're... Uh, at, at NCF, we're strongly of the belief that this is one of the most cost-effective public investments that the state of Minnesota can can uh, make to preserve affordable housing. You can't match the price point that manufactured housing delivers to the households and families that rely on it as housing stock. If you look at one park closure uh, or two or three, and again, the pace accelerates. Again, as I was saying earlier, this is just an act of actuarial math at some point. You know, when you're 40 or 50 years down the pike, if the dominant, and, and I should emphasize it's a dominant business model, I think, from our observation, not to invest significantly in a way that sustains the infrastructure. And that's for um, ideas that I think we're all familiar with. You know, you can maximize return on investment if you can kick the can down the road and not expect to have to make investments. Um, and, and yet, that is by far uh, from universal. We have seen some park owners. Uh, there's one terrific park owner that we worked with. He sold one of his communities in south-central Minnesota to the residents, 125 home sites in Fairmont, Minnesota, Five Lakes Cooperative today. Um, and he literally uh, hired an engineering firm, to, and he took one or two of their top talents and brought them into his park ownership model. He owns about 17 parks around, I think, Sheboygan area in Wisconsin. And he's basically hired them to do the systematic engineering improvement uh, work that we do with all of our communities. So once they go resident-owned, lot rents stabilize, uh, meaning we, we've looked over our portfolios and we check this in our office on an ongoing basis. The average lot rent increase after they go resident-owned is like less than the consumer price index. It's like 1.8% or 1.6% on average. And, and it just makes sense. There's no third-party profit-oriented investor that's getting paid and pulling that money out of the park the, the only reason the residents would ever have to raise the lot rents is if they need to because there's a spike in insurance, taxes, or some other operating cost increase, or you know the long-term effects of trying to maintain the reserves and do the kinds of improvements that they want to make to their community. They don't have any other interest. I mean, who around the table loves to vote for higher taxes, right? I mean, it's the same principle. Uh, these folks try to maintain the lot rents in the most efficient way possible. The board of directors knows they report to the membership. Again, it's just like a Republican form of government, small r, uh, where you know the board of directors reports to the members, and if they do a very ineffective or inefficient job of running the association, uh, they may well lose their seats on the board. And so Both there's the that kind out. of accountability. Exactly, right. So what's the future of... Uh, yeah kind of uh, mobile parks. I think we've heard something that's kind of very bleak and something much more optimistic. What, what's it going to look like in 10 years? Because currently there's nothing in the pipeline to get more mobile park communities, at least in the Twin Cities region. We're losing them. And so 
Where are they going to happen? Are they going to happen more in rural communities or more in the suburbs? Yeah. I mean, I think a model like what North Country does and, and Kevin's work does, um, I think is, is gaining a lot of momentum in Minnesota. Um, in a lot of different states, uh, just like you mentioned, New Hampshire, that's really become like uh, kind of like the model for a lot of people to go ahead and do. Isn't it like a quarter of the mobile home communities, yes. the manufactured housing communities there are uh, resident-owned? Um, in the legislator, uh, legislature, um, uh, Congressman Keith Ellison introduced a bill to go ahead and kind of give people, uh, uh, manufactured housing park owners, a tax incentive to go ahead if they, if they go ahead and sell to um, their residents, right, um, or to a nonprofit developer. Right. Um, so, I mean, that could show some promise, depending on how that goes, at least just kind of putting it on the table. Um, but, yeah, I mean, just like you mentioned, you said there are 30-something uh, parks around the metro area, only six in um, Hennepin County. And uh, I don't know, I don't see any sign of them saying, let's go ahead and build more of these manufactured housing communities. Um, one quick point that I wanted to make is, you know, anytime one of those closes, uh, a lot of people have, uh, a lot of the homeowners rely on a state fund um, that's kind of like this uh, this purse that you can go ahead and, and uh, reach into to go ahead and take money so you can help with your relocation. So you can go ahead and move somewhere else. Uh, that cap was $1.2 million, right? Something like that. And um, with just these two parks closing, Southgate and Bloomington, and with Lowry Grove and St. Anthony closing, uh, that cap lowered down to $80,000. Like, it's like there's barely any money left to go ahead and help people if, an, if another one of these parks should close. So um, I think a lot of people would also like to see something happen with that cap as well should these parks close. Yeah, I would just uh, say in terms of looking at the future, um, and, and just in a, in a slight amendment on the Lowry Grove uh, description of what happened there, the, the lawsuit related to that mm-hmm. closure, yeah. uh, in fact, I mean, there was a fair housing claim uh, that was filed with HUD, which was a separate effort. The primary litigation there was related to Minnesota is actually one of several states in the country that really formally recognizes the power imbalance of what happens if the home that you own is parked on someone else's land and you don't have any say about how the infrastructure on that land is maintained or what happens with that land. Like that's just a fundamentally, you know, different program than even if you're a tenant in an apartment building. If, if a landlord raises the rent, you can, you know, gather your stuff up and move out and find another apartment building. In these parks, you're talking about spending five, seven, eight, ten thousand $10,000 to move your home out uh, we've seen cases where parks have closed. The home has to get thrown in a dumpster because none of the local parks will accept the vintage of home that you own. You're still making payments on the home, and it's in the landfill. And you're trying to figure out what your next move is with your family. So that kind of like um, structural imbalance of what those relationships are has been recognized in Minnesota. So we do have something called uh, right of first refusal on the books, 327C.095. It's a statute oh, that impressive. says, n- sorry, uh, you know, whatever. You just wanted to show <laughs> off. So, so that statute, and the reason I raised that is that statute was what the Lowry Grove residents there were trying to rely on to afford them the opportunity to buy it. And the statute currently says that they have 45 days to basically um, show up with an offer and, and it's, it is truly a right of first refusal, meaning that the park owner is obligated to accept the resident's offer if it matches in every other material way, basically, what the other uh, you know, developer has offered. And frankly, that probably gives the statute a little more credit than it's due because it's not even quite that clear. Um, and that's, it, it's full of holes. It's a poorly crafted statute, I think many observers would say. Our own attorney general weighed in on the Lowry Groves case and wrote an amicus brief on behalf of the residents, which basically, and, and, and in the end, it was day 44, the day before, as I understand it, the day before the timeline would have even run its course when the park was sold to the other uh, developer. Uh, so again, I mean, just on the face of it, it's like the 45-day clock didn't fully run. Again, it's so poorly written that it's really hard to enforce. So there's actually there's a manufactured homeowners advocacy group called All Parks Alliance for Change, APAC, and they've been active in this arena, and they're uh, hoping. So again, for those of you wondering about right what what the future is and what can I do about it if I care about these issues, um, APAC is actually going to be working to try to strengthen that right of first refusal statute to get it much better written. And then separately, Aon, the nonprofit group, uh, they will be advocating for an opportunity to purchase statute, which is an effort that basically says 
every time a park, not just when the park is in crisis, which is what the right of first refusal um, gets triggered by, but when every time a park gets sold, uh, the park residents should have an opportunity to make a run at it and be able to offer their what they see to be fair market value, either partnering with a group like ours or with a nonprofit organization. And that's the statute they've had on the books for 35 years in New Hampshire. And as Miguel said, today, one out of four parks in New Hampshire are owned by the residents that live in the parks. And so they have a direct say in how they're governed, whether the infrastructure gets improved or not, and frankly, whether their um, investment in their homes will be a worthwhile investment or a poor decision on their part. And so there's going to be an effort around that that Aon's going to be leading in the upcoming session and likely in years to come. Uh, so that's something to keep your eyes on, both what Aon and APAC are planning to do. Either of those statutes would be very helpful in these two very different sets of circumstances. On that note, please give a round of applause to our wonderful two guests, Miguel Odorola and Kevin Walker. Who has a question? I will come to you. Yes, in the front. I think it was last summer that somebody died in uh, manufacturer housing in Wisconsin uh, during a tornado. And so w what happens in, uh, I don't know, rules about uh, tornado shelters or? Yeah, what are the rules around natural disasters? How do people keep safe? Minnesota is the only state in the country that requires tornado shelters or evacuation plans. Uh, and it depends on what year the park was developed as well as what size it is, about which of those two options are expected to be in place. Um, I, I can also say, I mean, like, unfortunately, too many things um, in, in this industry, uh, it's pretty poorly enforced. I mean, sometimes an evacuation plan is pretty weak sauce, I think, if, if you're the one to be evacuated. Or, again, like the level of disability among park residents is, like in the Twin Cities, it's about 60% higher than the general population in, in all housing. So it really begs the question. We had one of the communities that went resident-owned. Uh, the evacuation plan for them is they were supposed to go to the local fire department, which is like a mile or so from the park, go down these really steep stairs, even steeper than the ones that get you to the stage. Uh, and I, I just don't know how you would do that if you were physically disabled, like what, how that represents any kind of an option. Plus, it was dramatically um, undersized. So Minnesota requires at least, um, let's see, four square feet for every man, woman, and child that live in the community in terms of sizing the shelter. Many of the so-called shelters are dramatically undersized, and many of them aren't well-maintained. So all of that to say, I mean, Minnesota has one of the better legal frameworks out there, but it could be a lot better. Uh, it's often one of the priorities we hear about from the residents we work with. Uh, Park Plaza recently won a grant with our help uh, with the State Housing Finance Agency. They're going to build a brand-new storm shelter for their 90-some households in that community. But again, it's, it's kind of one-off. <laughs> much more than it should be. There's no economic return for the park owner, so if they can kind of get away with not doing a shelter or figuring out an evacuation plan, that's too often too preferable. Is there an example of perhaps a cooperative that does an excellent job that you've seen that has a facility that would meet the needs of a disaster? So we have, I would say Park Plaza's on the way to um, actually knocking it out of the park when they build their new shelter. Uh, it's our, we've actually worked with an architect. We did get some funding from uh, USDA, uh, Rural Development, toward the development of three different prototypes of uh, small, medium, and large uh, types of storm shelters. And then we're working with Park Plaza, and when they build their storm shelter, it'll be not just a shelter. I mean, sometimes we've seen literally like concrete staves uh, that get just rounded out. And that can be a fine shelter if you just need the bare basics for, for that. Uh, Park Plaza used to have a below-ground shelter where you know you basically just walk into the ground and it's like a cinder block basement dug out with a wooden bench sitting on all sides it's now flooding and the electric all short circuits because it's you know it's not been well maintained over the years well i so. take my chances with the tornado right <laughs> well that's just it i mean you, you have to ask like am i better off here or what are my other options exactly so our vision is that a storm shelter that's designed to be a community center can be a wonderful space for the members to you know host events um, have social events maybe even weddings or wedding receptions and quinceaneras in one of our communities that's predominantly latino uh, so we've we've seen a range of solutions, and again, the residents are often the most creative to come up with good solutions for this. Other questions? I think I saw a hand in the front. Yes. Um, okay, so one of my questions is, so the time frame of Lowry Grove is that, you know, these residents had to move out 
but the the people that the developer that purchased the property, what was the time frame there of like, okay, we're gonna evict everybody and give you notice versus getting the denial from the city saying, all right, we're not gonna approve your development because why would you? I mean, most people don't evict people unless they know they have an approved plan to move forward with something new. That's a lot of people to evict. And then also secondary to that, if if they do, then they can't do something. You know, they can't. They're not doing the development. They're renting it out as an RV park. Isn't there infrastructure there as well that they would need to update and and maintain in order to be able to have it open as an RV park? Aren't there rules and regulations in regards to that? Uh, again, all excellent questions. I, I have to say, I mean, the whole situation, it's, it's hard for me to understand the whole sequence as it's played itself out. I mean, to me, it's unimaginable that one would purchase a piece of property for $6 million and not know that you have your entitlements lined up with the city for your land use and your density at the level that that's needed. Um, and again, I, I think, I mean, again, based partly here on Miguel and Hannah's good work in documenting what, what's been said, it's, I mean, the, the claims I think out there is that there was some verbal pronouncements that were made. Again, the idea that you would rely on verbal pronouncements rather than it's like in writing by the relevant, I mean, normally you would get an option agreement, right? I mean, as a developer, and I, I can't understand how uh, that wouldn't have happened here. Uh, and so I, I wonder a little bit if we know all the facts of the situation because it just challenges credulity that you would go ahead and get that far in the process and go through all of the political and legal expense of right evicting a major prominent community in the heart of the metro area. Uh, it just staggers my imagination about how that whole situation. So I, I just, I'm not sure that we all know the full story and I don't know what it all is, but... Um, yeah, and, yeah. And, I, and I'll jump in too. I mean, this all started before I even joined the paper, but I mean, this whole point up to when people had to move out, they basic, we basically thought, Hannah and I thought that, okay, it seems that the city will approve this development, everything's okay, might have been a secret handshake or it might have been verbal, who knows. Um, but up until we were releasing that first story when they were going to go ahead and evict everybody on June 30th, we still had not seen any plans, I don't think, about uh, what was going to happen. There were no proposals or anything like that. We just knew. Uh, it's going to be maybe look this certain way, have some sort of component for affordability. Uh, that was about it. Um, so when all these news came out that the city ended up going, was going to reject this and then ultimately rejected it, um, again, it, it came as a shock to all of us. The, the timeline has been really spotty. And um, now it's come to a point where it's just uh, a lot of personalities and, and drama and finger pointing over whose fault this was. You know, was it the developer for not giving enough information about his plans? Was it the city for going against their own promise to go ahead and build something? And ultimately, everybody that's stuck in the middle of this whole thing is the residents that were moved out, you know? Um, I saw a story in City Pages that basically puts this all into perspective that said, like, basically, this, mo uh, this um, I need to fight my own stereotypes against saying mobile home community, by the way. Um, this manufactured housing community had to be torn down for no reason. Uh, there's, so everything's gone. Uh, I have not been there lately. Uh, I, I think I, so. Right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's it, it's kind of painful to drive by. It, it basically looks like a graveyard in my mind. I mean, yeah. Hannah I, or the Star Tribune photographer took a great picture of stairs leading oh, to yeah. nowhere. Yeah. Uh, that's I mean, that's the primary physical evidence that the community was there. You asked, though, real quick about just, uh, it was both an RV park and a manufactured housing community. Okay. Um, so I think the idea of going ahead and bringing back RVs wouldn't be as difficult to do as mm -hmm. it would be to uh, create an entire really healthy, uh, sustainable uh, manufactured housing community. Okay. Thank you. Uh, agreed. And something like 40% of the income of the park in its original form was from RVs. Actually, a lot of the folks that worked on the Viking Stadium lived in big RVs in that park. Those, those are the true mobile homes. Yeah. Right. Other questions? Yeah. Two really short questions. So um, it's the theater of public policy. Why aren't politicians more interested and more involved? Because all they care about is votes and their seat, wherever it is. So why aren't they doing more for these communities? And um, the second one is, what about fundraising? It, is, would this be an option for um, such a park community? Before you get to that, a quick plug. Uh, next week on Monday, or no, Tuesday, Tuesday, uh, we are hosting a mayoral forum at the Capri Theater in North Minneapolis. So if you want to ask a candidate for mayor that question, you can definitely do that. And then on Friday, we're doing one in St. Paul. So you can ask a St. Paul mayor that question. Anyone can. It doesn't have to be this person here. You don't, 
You don't have to come to all of our shows. I excuse her from that, but <laughs> go ahead. Sure, I'll take a quick spin at that. Uh, first of all, with respect to legislators overall and policymakers, I have to say that we've, we've seen remarkable uh, progress there, uh, and, and I would actually give credit on both sides of the aisle. We've seen strong interest by rural Republicans uh, as well as uh, metro area Republicans and Democrats uh, around the state in this issue. I think there's an increasing awareness about the cost effectiveness of manufactured housing, the fact that on a per unit basis, what it takes to sustain one of these communities versus what it costs to build a brand new apartment building, which you know a typical average cost is like a quarter million dollars for a new so-called affordable housing unit uh, in the way the tax credit program works for a lot of multifamily development. Again, very wonderful projects and very great outcomes. But in the long run, you know, how much money can we invest as a society in affordable housing? And when we have so many housing units, like 14,083 communities we can point to in our metro area alone, why wouldn't we be investing to sustain what we have versus building new? And it helps support people that have already, frankly, put their money where their mouth is because they already bought a home. Maybe they've paid off that home, and they just want to maintain that investment and that place where they already live and where their kids already go to school, et cetera. Uh, just a quick note on that, and then I'll go to the fundraising question. We, we actually, when, when we have been watching these communities increasingly at risk, uh, we looked at, and uh, Lowry Grove is a brilliant example. It's in one of the top school districts in Minnesota. Again, overwhelmingly a Latino community. So when you think about socioeconomic mobility and building broader economic opportunity for uh, Minnesota and our future, going to Brandon's earlier question, this is the kind of housing stock that we frankly can't afford to lose. And we looked at all of the home sites that have been found by APAC to be at risk of redevelopment, and something like uh, almost 9 out of 10 of the units are in the top 10% of school districts in Minnesota. And that reflects the fact that a lot of this is suburban housing. And I, I think you might have a disappointing response at a city of St. Paul, city of Minneapolis conversation. There are no parks in Minneapolis or St. Paul. I mean, that's the urban core. This stuff is suburban and it's rural. And it's really important. Uh, we see Deborah Keel going to the legislator. She's the chair of the GOP Rural Caucus. And she actually invited us in for a special presentation on both existing manufactured housing communities and also to Brandon's point about the future of MH or manufactured housing. We've been exploring the concept of using the known tools of today, the low income housing tax credit program, to do new development of brand new energy efficient manufactured housing. Um, and, and new development of these communities. And we actually just got funding from Minnesota Housing uh, for a value gap program. Uh, what it costs you to bring a brand new Energy Star single section or multi-section home to a site, set it up, put in the infrastructure and do all of that. It costs more than what it's worth. And that's partly because of how the homes are even titled. These are homed, These are titled like a boat or a car. They're personal property. So you can't even get the regular real estate financing that we take for granted for site-built construction, which means that when you buy the house, you're really at risk that somebody else can't buy you. I mean, who could sell their house for any kind of value if you had to sell it to somebody with cash? I mean, what would the value of your house be if you relied on somebody not getting a loan to buy your house? So that's yet another whole section of what's broken about this sector. And there's work uh, that's happening both locally and nationally. And again, some of it slowly led by um, agencies and regulatory uh, groups. But lastly, on the, the fundraising front, um, you know, fundamentally, the residents, if they're given an opportunity to purchase their communities, they can stand up and do it. And they can do it with their, in, in most cases, with their existing lot rents. It's also, and, and like I was saying earlier, a slight increase in lot rents is enough to afford the financing uh, to purchase their communities, meaning that we don't need, in most cases, unless the infrastructure is pretty in rough shape, like a Lowry Grove situation, we generally don't need any public subsidy uh, to make these deals work. The residents just need to have an opportunity to get invited into the room and make a serious run at it. In New Hampshire, the way the law works, it says that nobody can accept an unconditional offer to, to uh, purchase their park unless the residents have 60-day opportunity 
to present their own offer. And then it doesn't even obligate the park owner to accept the residence offer. It just says the park owner has to negotiate in good faith. And that's been a critical provision because it's meant that it doesn't get evaluated as uh, regulatory takings or that the state is like using its power to wrest it out of a park owner's hands. It's like you'll get what it's worth, but you just have to treat the residence offer as serious and give it proper respect is basically what the rule is. And that, over the last 35 years, has meant that 125-some communities in New Hampshire have gone resident-owned. Something like that would be a game-changer in Minnesota. And going to your question about the policymakers, if policymakers would rally around that point, and we found something like 30, over 30 legislators co-sponsored legislative initiatives that NCF brought to the legislature last year, if a core group of those legislators heard from constituents uh, or park residents that that's a priority, it would truly change this sector, and as it has in New Hampshire and Massachusetts and a couple of other states with statutes like that. We're not in position to advocate for that directly because we very much rely on willing park owners, but other people, again, like Aon or APAC or other organizations could take the lead on that. We're happy to testify on the technical aspects. We just can't advocate for it directly. All right, I saw another hand over here. Curious what the average age of ownership is in these parks, and then also if that's different amongst different genres like single or married or retired or race or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I mean, that really does vary a lot. I mean, we talked about a couple of things with us the low income, uh, a lot of Latino families as well, and some of these, fami- some of these uh, uh, manufactured houses had a lot of people living in them. Uh, but, you know, there were, were parents that were, you know, in their 30s and their 40s. Um, also something that we didn't point out is that it's a, it's a big kind of um, place for, for senior living as well. Uh, people that maybe choose to sell their house, right, and go to cheaper uh, form of housing. Uh, we, we, when, I, when Hannah and I were doing our stories, we spoke with people that were, you know, 70s and their 80s. Um, so, I mean, it really does vary. I mean, just like we said, they're, they're, reti- they're retirees. They're living by themselves. Um, but other people, this is where they live and they send their kids to school, something like some, what happened in St. Anthony as well. Um, and again, I think, I think the bigger thing does have to do with um, different demographics, which have to do with just uh, being minority, whether that's, that's black or Latino. I mean, a lot of these places, the main language that they spoke was Spanish, and that's how a lot of people just communicated, and that's how they rallied around. They're involved in civil rights a lot, especially with something like mm-hmm. uh, Lowry Grove, um, where some incredibly brilliant people work uh, to go ahead and kind of give rights for uh, uh, people that are maybe undocumented or, or um, Latino that live in these communities. So, I mean, uh, that's something that you kind of you, you see a lot. And just to tack on to that, we, we see this being highly specific by market. So we have our community Medelia Mobile Village Cooperative in Medelia, Minnesota, 96% Latino, pr- predominantly monolingual Spanish speakers. We do the organizing work in Spanish. Another community in Clarks Grove, Hillcrest Community Cooperative, 90-plus home sites. 30% of that community is, uh, speaks either Karen, Thai, or Lao, because uh, those are the local immigrant groups uh, working in the local area. Uh, Zumbro Ridge Estates that just went resident-owned, uh, what, a week ago now? Wow, it seems like a year ago. Um, so uh, Zumbro Ridge Estates, 122 home sites on the edge of Rochester. Again, very strong Southeast Asian population there. So we've really had to stretch and partner with local social service agencies to be able to even communicate uh, with a number of the folks there. I remember one big uh, community organizing meeting in Moorhead High School at Bennett Park Co-op We had both Spanish and, uh, like, um, Hungarian uh, translation going at the same uh, meeting, basically. Can I just say Kevin's Spanish is very good. I just saw him. There was a a meeting where uh, at Park Plaza where everybody there was speaking Spanish, and then Kevin was like, do you mind if I change up? And he did, and it was great. So I just had to point. I had to make that plug. Prove it. Thank you. That's nice. Prove (laughs) it. It's very, very good. No. No? Okay. A lot of pressure on Kevin. I'm sorry. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Um, w- one final question. So um, I, I'm making an assumption that uh, probably the majority of our audience does not live in manufactured housing. Though then again, uh, my own parents lived in ma- uh, mobile homes uh, when they were first married. But um, to people in this audience or people listening to the podcast, um, what is the one thing that they should take away from this conversation thinking about manufactured housing? If someone was going to ask them, like, what did you do last night? Oh, I went to this show, and, or I listened to this podcast, and I really thought about blank. What do you think that they should think or say to people? 
Do you want to start that one out, Miguel? Or? Sure, I'll start it out. Um, I think that the biggest thing is that there are still misconceptions. A lot, there's a lot of misconceptions about what manufactured housing is. Um, just like we said, it's not mobile homes anymore. It's not trailer parks. Um, these are people that value, uh, give a lot of value to the community. Um, and uh, I think one of the biggest things is to just kind of try to step in their shoes, right, and see what they're going through. I remember seeing a lot of comments on our own stories of just how um, a lot of people would go like, well, they were given enough time. They're able to you know, move somewhere else. This happens all the time, right? Sometimes you have to leave because of development, and that's how it goes. But it really is not that easy, especially when there's a lot of mount, like mounting issues that you're facing, a lot of mountain challenges. So um, I think it's just important for people to step into the shoes of the people that live in these houses. Mm -hmm. I, I would echo uh, much of what Miguel said. I, you know, I think of the bumper sticker, bumper sticker, start seeing motorcycles. I would say start seeing manufactured homes. Uh, the, the folks that live in these homes are vital parts of their community. Uh, we've seen phenomenal leadership emerge in every community that we work with. I mean, there is, in any of these communities that we've gone to, we've had um, board chairs that go on to lead. Uh, they get appointed to a local housing and redevelopment authority board. Uh, we've had one board chair run for mayor, I think more than once. Uh, we've, I mean, we just see tremendous leadership and the kind of work that these folks do, and frankly, the time they put in, I, I'm sure I speak for the whole NCF staff, when we go to these communities and we literally go to their monthly board meetings once they take over their communities, it is inspiring that they will show up. We had this amazing lady up in uh, Moorhead, Connie Mir, who literally has been in a wheelchair ever since she was literally hit by a truck, like, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, and she came religiously to every board meeting and it's just the grit. I mean, that we had a 96-year-old board chair up there who was driving the lawnmower for the co-op uh, to mow the vacant home sites. He fell off the lawnmower. They had to take him to the hospital. And then when he was done, he got right back on the mower and <laughs> kept at it. You know, I mean, this is the kind of, like, tremendous uh, resilience of the people that live in these communities. Uh, when you look at the organizing work that they're naturally capable of, all we do is show up, provide them an opportunity, and they run this thing. And it's, it's just inspiring. And I think it's a reminder to all of us that we need to revisit, you know, what uh, stigmas and stereotypes that we allow to continue to get applied to people. Uh, you still hear the word trailer in certain major news outlets, including ones that many of us hear every day. Again, there's room to say trailer and mobile homes. Frankly, many of these so-called manufactured housing communities mostly are mobile homes, depending on how old they are and when the homes are that, that went into the site. So it's fine to call them a mobile home park or a, a trailer park. But just never underestimate the people that live in these communities, and they're just like all of us, in my mind. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Miguel Odorola and Kevin Walker. Thank you for listening. This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to attend one of our live shows or are interested in working with us on an issue you're passionate about, you can find out more information on our website at www.t2p2.net and on Facebook and Twitter. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend about it. Thanks.